watchers in the fourth dimension. Hello and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And I must admit your fellow does know how to curry a chicken. <laughs> this episode, we're enjoying the Doctor's newfound freedom to travel in time and space with an attempted journey to Metabilis 3 gone wrong in Carnival <laughs> of Monsters. But before we get into our discussion, Riley's going to take a quick look at the mail. Take it away, Riley. We have some general feedback and questions from a couple. First off is Troy Hunter. He says, hey, often when I listen to your excellent podcast, I wonder how you know one another, how you met, friends from university, workmates, fandom on the interwebs. Before Anthony goes on to answer this, I believe I speak for the rest of us when I say that Anthony has captured all of us, much like Mystery Science Theater 3000, and that's how we are here, stuck watching all of Doctor Who in order. We are trapped in a basement. We are only given food that has appeared on the show. (laughs) Please send help. (laughs) In all seriousness, I am the common thread here and that I brought this Motley crew together. I met Don at a house party about 11 years ago, heard he had a Doctor Who ringtone when a text came through and kind of basically decided we were going to be friends and he hasn't been able to get rid of me since then. (laughs) As for Riley and Julie, I met both of them at Poolanta and then thought, hmm, These are some smart people who are actually all kind of hilarious. I think they would be fun doing a podcast together. So when I had the idea, I asked everyone and thankfully everyone said yes. Except Riley didn't show up the first day. (laughs) Riley did not show up to our first prep meeting. Also, I love that I'm smart and funny and I'm like, well, when did you meet me? It was probably around midnight and there was probably a lot of alcoholic cherries involved. (laughs) That sounds about right. (laughs) David Campbell has a question regarding season nine. He says, I'm curious to know what you think a traveling companion character for Delgado's master would have been like. Would it be another evil time lord that he could respect as an almost equal? He doesn't think much of humans, but like the third doctor, I think he'd enjoy having someone to show off to and have marvel at his cleverness. As he has no loyalty, I imagine a companion wouldn't last long before getting left behind or killed. (laughs) A stupid, admiring, but immortal lackey. That he can kill when he's frustrated that will come back to life and just move on like there's nothing else that happened. It needs to be the chef from Enemy of the World. Griffin the chef. I don't know. I just can see that he prefers the company of old bureaucrats. He likes to have them around. He just seems to exchange one for another. Boy, then would we have a planet for him in today's episode? <laughs> if he has an infinite supply of chicken, he could just take Mr. Chin with him. <laughs> We have some questions regarding the time monster. Nicholas Rutherford says that, oh, this isn't a question. This is a statement. Says that Kronos's look always reminds me of Dave Hill of Slade. (laughs) Anthony sent a picture of this to me earlier. And yes, I agree. Don Jeffrey Kroskop. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. You got the first part right. Yes. (laughs) Says a rather randy classic series tale. (laughs) Oh, okay. It definitely was i think we said the thirstiest doctor who story to date yes it was paul arthur also known as doctor who's 60s 70s and 80s says one of the reasons i enjoy the podcast is you guys seem to be totally free of any preconceived notion of what the stories are like conventional fan wisdom has it that the time monster colony in space and the mutants are all terrible but your positive comments have encouraged me to look at them again and to my surprise they are not nearly as bad as i thought (laughs) Woo! By the way, tomtit is an old-fashioned slang term for a small bird. (laughs) Good to know. I believe it's a slang term for something else, but okay. (laughs) Beardo Beatnik says that now that you all have sat through the worst of Pertwee, it's all rainbows and sunshine from here on out. On to the best season of Pertwee. We shall see. That sounds ominous. Yeah, it's a little (laughs) bit. Bit of a threat there. The Whovian gal says, I really like this one. It's not good by any objective measure I can think of, but I always have a ton of fun with it. The Amazing Three and Joe character moments certainly make it worth watching. (laughs) It's great despite its quality. And lastly, regarding the time monster, Astrazon Danglebert Zebulon says, Kronos! (laughs) We have a comment all the way back to the mutants from Bill Lamont. 
In regards to Don's assertion that Veron could be recast with Matt Berry, Bill says, Matt Berry as anyone. I've even caught him in Gareth Marenghi's Dark Place and the IT crowd. Good to see him still working in what we do in the shadows. We, I'm sure Don hasn't mentioned him. I've mentioned him. We are all big fans of Matt Berry and my choice for next Doctor. I'm only 35% kidding. And clearly someone at Disney is also a big fan of Matt Berry. Yes, that Mm -hmm. is true. And lastly, in regards to our interview with Peter Purvis, Mike Zablinski said, I had the pleasure of getting to chat with him a couple of years ago at the Regeneration Who convention. And because he gave me a box of Thin Mints, he is automatically the best Doctor Who companion ever. (laughs) Tied with Annika Willis, who also gave me a box of Thin Mints. What's with Doctor Who celebrities handing this gentleman boxes of Thin Mints? And why aren't they handing them to us? And what is their Girl Scout connection? I've been to many (laughs) conventions and met many of these folks, and not one of them has given me a box of Girl Scout cookies. And now I'm feeling very snubbed. Previous Doctor Who actors, we know you all listen to this podcast. Next time you see Anthony (laughs) at a convention, please, just like a sleeve of Oreos, just something. He'll even take Hydrox. That's the mail. Anthony, back to you. Thank you, Riley. And as a reminder, we love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And we do try and read as many of them out as possible on the show. Please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D, or you can email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. On to Carnival of Monsters. And for the background of this one, with Robert Holmes having previously seen a fair amount of success with his scripts, having delivered the season openers to seasons seven and eight, script editor Terence Sticks was keen to work with him again. Holmes was duly commissioned to write a storyline originally entitled The Labyrinth, which was to be designed with the idea of it being a budget story, one that could potentially be made without any location filming and with much of the action being split between two separate locations with two separate sets of guest characters, allowing for actors to be hired only for half of the serial, depending on which location their part of the story took place in. Holmes formally received his commission for the scripts at the end of 1971 and quickly changed the name of the serial to Peep Show. During scripting, Dix was concerned that the only real threat that Vorg and Scherner encountered was that of a penalty for breaking import regulations. Oh no! And so Holmes added the subplot with the attempted overthrow of President Zarb. Holmes also took the opportunity to rename a number of characters and items within the script, including renaming the story's MacGuffin from Strobe to Miniscope. And ever the great wit, Holmes was cognizant of the budget nature of the story and named the Drashigs as an anagram of dish rags. <laughs> now, once the show's 10th season was confirmed by the BBC, Dix and producer Barry Letts started drawing up highly ambitious plans for the season. With that in mind, Peep Show was a natural addition to the season in order to basically balance the books, and it was placed second in the running order. Plans were made to kick off the season with the three Doctors, but Patrick Troughton's availability meant that that particular serial couldn't be filmed until later in the year. Let's made the decision to record Peep Show at the end of the show's ninth production block and to be held over to season 10. For this serial, Let's decided to invoke the clause in his contract that allowed him to direct one serial per year. He had, of course, previously directed The Enemy of the World and Terror of the Autons, as well as a significant portion of Inferno, albeit that one was uncredited. Joining him on the creative team, we have Roger Limington as designer, who also worked on The Three Doctors, James Aitchison as costumer, who also worked on The Three Doctors, as well as Season 9's The Mutants, And rounding out our creative team, our old friend Dudders returns to provide incidental music. When it came to actually making the serial, while it was originally scripted to allow the option of no location filming whatsoever, four days of it were ultimately allocated. Most notably, two days of this occurred on board the decommissioned ship, the RFA Robert Dundas, which doubled for the SS Bernice. At one point, the shoot was interrupted when it was discovered that the old brass ship's compass had disappeared. Turned out that John Pertwee had taken it, believing that it would be scrapped along with the ship and wouldn't be missed. In actuality, they were going to auction it off, and John Pertwee, as a result, very, very sheepishly returned it. Damn thief. (laughs) (laughs) During studio recording, the title of the serial was changed from Peep Show to Carnal of Monsters. This change was made at the request of Dix, who felt that Peep Show had lewd connotations that he wanted to avoid. (laughs) Robert Holmes was reportedly incredibly unhappy with this decision. 
A number of other changes also occurred during post-production, when episodes 2 and 4 were found to both be significantly overrunning. This forced a number of scenes to be cut, particularly those involving Vorg, Scherner, and the Interminer officials. Oh no. Yeah, <laughs> tragedy. Another incident of interest during post-production was the abortive attempt at introducing a new arrangement of the theme tune, the infamous Delaware theme by Paddy Kingsland. Oh no. If you want to hear our thoughts on that, check out our 17th bonus episode in which we discussed it at the last holiday season. But that particular version of the theme was quickly dropped when BBC head of serials Ronnie Marsh voiced his unhappiness at the new arrangement and asked that the original Derbyshire arrangement was reinstated. It actually turned out that Paddy Kingsland didn't like the new arrangement anyway and wasn't exactly heartbroken at it being dropped. The finished serial was broadcast between the 27th of January and the 17th of February 1973. And with that, we will move into our short summary, which is with Riley this episode. Over to you, my friend. Step right up, step right up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the greatest show in town, guaranteed for a limited time only. Come see the Ogrons, come see the Cybermen. We've got the easily aggravated Tellurians. We've even got the giant plastic caterpillars with dog mouths known as the Dragish. And that's right, ladies and gentlemen, I warn you, you can even behold the wimpiest and most gullible aliens ever created by God or man. I present to you, Kallik, Orum, and Pletrak of Interminer. And if that doesn't interest you, in the next booth is a shooting gallery where you can fire an eradicator at baggage handlers. (laughs) Well, that sounds like good sport. Let's kick it off episode one. I have questions about the design, I guess design, costuming, the makeup, and the hair, everything about these guys. Is that question, what the hell, by any chance? (laughs) Yes, yes it is. Oh boy, it was a choice. Yeah, and I think this comes from Robert Holmes. Even the sets are grey on Interminer, and... I think the number of bureaucrats we've seen in the Pertwee era, he is sending that up by making everything grey and boring about them. And I kind of love that as a design choice. So I didn't look at them as just being like bureaucrats. I thought that, one, they were the most paranoid group of people I've ever seen on this show. Holy crap, every single little thing, it's either going to kill them because of disease or somehow they're trying to take us over. It was so bad. Yeah... All I know is 30 seconds within this serial, we've got goofy looking aliens, model shots for spaceships, and the title has the word monsters in it. I am in. See, I love the title. I like the title more than I do the serial. The baggage handling aliens, I just kind of went, wow, that looks bad even by Doctor Who standards. And the bureaucrats, it's like they didn't even finish putting their makeup on. (laughs) Plus they're all unloading Christmas presents. And then the people arrive who look like they were dressed by John Nathan Turner. And it's just not good. Bright side with the bureaucrats, one of them is played by Peter Halliday, a.k.a. Packer. (laughs) And another one is the gentleman who will eventually go and be the first version of Davros. Oh, wow. Yeah. Some heavy hitters there, even if they are playing dull grey bureaucrats. I don't know how I missed the fact that they were like super bureaucrats. I just kind of glossed over that. (laughs) Because they're always talking about this tribunal and the law says this while they're scheming. and I mean, they're basically acting as customs officials at an airport. (laughs) And that's the only setting we get on this planet is that one little room. Customs officials, two of whom are also plotting to overthrow the president. Yes. You mentioned that was thrown in there at the last minute. You could tell it was thrown at the last minute because it made zero sense. Yep. They may just be working TSA level management. They're going to take over the whole place. They got big dreams. <laughs> you know what this all reminds me of? I just figured it out. This reminds me of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. You give me a title, Carnival of Monsters, and I'm uh. expecting to see a whole bunch of monsters and interacting with them. But that's not what I got. I got something that was this a whole convoluted mess when all I wanted to see was a whole bunch of different monsters. What you get is a carny, his assistant, and some bureaucrats watching Doctor Who on TV. (laughs) Yeah, I've got that as well, Don. If the lack of monsters disappoints Julie, you know it disappointed me. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned before we started recording that I have very mixed feelings about this serial. Pretty much everything to do with the bureaucrats, I despise. And it bothers me even more because there's this really good potential plot with the Doctor and Joe being on this ship that's caught in a time loop and is being randomly attacked by a monster and then everyone forgets. And I'm like, wow, that is a really good setup. And they don't spend enough time there. And it's kind of ruined because as soon as you see the device, you know exactly where the Doctor and Joe are and it completely kills it. Yeah, the reveal is way too soon because this uses the framing device. If you had them exploring this thing for most of it, and then the reveal is where they wind up, they could have done something really good and intriguing, but instead you're just sitting around waiting for the doctor to figure it out. Imagine if the reveal didn't happen for the audience until the giant hand comes down and pulls the TARDIS out as the cliffhanger. Yeah, I would have left that, but yeah. I wouldn't have had like any of that stuff until episode three or four. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I see where you're going, Don, and I think dramatically it would have worked better. But I kind of, I really enjoy those bureaucrat scenes because I think they're almost Douglas Adams-esque before Douglas Adams was even a thing. To me, it's almost a comedic take on the absolute banality of bureaucracy. I get what they're going for. I think it's really funny. I wasn't amused by it. It was one joke spread out for four episodes. Mm, fair enough. Mm -hmm. I got it. Okay, hey, they're bureaucrats. I'm like, oh my God, it's the same conversation. <laughs> and if it doesn't happen, then it shifts over to what Julia was talking about before of the aliens being just dogmatic about rules, rules, rules. And then if they don't do that, then they shift over to, I'm so scared. Oh no, what is this? <laughs> Let's move on to some other things. Can we talk about Vorg and Shirna? First off, what did they do to Doug Henning? Did they kill him and steal his <laughs> outfit? Because when he first showed up, my first thought was, oh, he's a magician. I'm a child of the 80s. No, he's just a carnival guy. Looks like a rejected outfit for the sixth doctor. <laughs> I'm happy to find out that Borg is completely useless and that Sherna actually has a decent head on her shoulders and understands what's going on. Yep. yep. She is the brains of the operation. I appreciated that. But Borg doesn't really listen to her. No. No, he's an idiot in the worst and he just has no concept of what is going on in life in general. It's fine because she's wonderful. They're a very classic Robert Holmes double act. Mm -hmm. We've seen him do it before and he's doing it here and he's doing it well again. I kind of love them. They're the underdogs going up against the machinery of bureaucracy and somehow coming out on top at the end, even if they do lose their machine. I think there's something very nice about that. I like them more than any of the bureaucrat storyline. Yeah, they've got their whole like, oh, there's going to be a rebellion of the servants, but that doesn't go anywhere. There's just a lot of missed opportunities in that. Either they should have gone more with it, or you take them out completely and this couple just go around trying to convince people to look into this machine. And it's not these bureaucrats that are looking in. It's just like some random people, but it focuses on them and the machine, I think would have been better. I agree. Let's talk about what I think we all agree is universally good. And that's the scenes that take place on the SS Bernice. Oh, it's wonderful. I love everything about it. And we've got Andrews, the younger officer, who's played by the legendary Ian Martyr, who was originally in the running to be Captain Yates, turned the part down because he had other commitments, but he'll be back to be a companion at a later time. And I love him. Just in general, I love this setting. I love the crew. I love what they're doing. I love the concept of time just periodically resetting itself. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that... It's like the Mary Celeste. I was like, hey, we brought in the Mary Celeste again. That's fun. And I love Claire. I love her. She doesn't do much, but I love her anyway. And I love how as that story moves along, we start putting the pieces together a little too early. But seeing the Doctor kind of figuring things out and seeing things that are strange, like the metal plate that are just so strange and he knows it's out of place, but no one else can see it. Those build that mystery that kind of feeds into that missed opportunity Don was talking about. I have obviously problems with this serial. It is also a serial I would be most excited to re-edit mm. because I think all that stuff on the ship and just this 
you get to a certain point where, oh, look, there's the hand there. And they go to the planet of the dish rags and all that kind of stuff. They're like, what is going on? And then by that time, once you get to that end reveal of they're in this this thing, this little menagerie, it's a really good reveal. But it's just spoiled too soon. It's spoiled too soon and you don't get to go to enough places. It kind of reminds me a little bit how in the war games you go to all these different sections of Mm -hmm. of history and things like that. If they had actually gone to where the Cybermen were, or I think they even mentioned Daleks were even there, or the Ogrons, it would have been more impactful to have gone to all those different places, but we only got to see the dish rags. Yeah, we so (laughs) almost got the only Cyberman story of the Pertwee era, but sadly it was not to be. Damn teases. I think the premise itself is good. Don is correct that the story structure needed to be rearranged. And also, as Julie said, I was really upset that, you know, we really only got two monsters, the monster around the Bernice, which is a pleosaur, I don't know, some sort of dinosaur, and then the dish rags, I guess is what we're going to call them from now on. (laughs) But like how hard it would have been to have just a simple, like it doesn't even have to be a long scene, like as Joe and the doctor are like going through one place to another, couldn't they have just cut through another little pocket universe in there that you just, you know, I don't know, find a beanbag and slap two googly eyes on it or something and move on. You had to, you know, have all that stuff cut out so you could have more bureaucrats scheming (laughs) and arguing. Yes. It was interesting because they show the brief glimpse of a Cyberman. And I'm like, you could have just very easily had them look in. They see the Cyberman and the doctor says, nope, and closes again and moves on. That would have been good. Yeah, it's a good little joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I really like Joe and her, her keys, her skeleton keys that she got. I love that. Oh, that was so good. Joe, the master of escapology. <laughs> The Doctor and Joe have some really good moments in this because, again, we've moved past, I think, the worst of Pertwee being a dick. And so we're getting that really good groove between Doctor and Companion. That is a distant memory at this point. I know, right? Oh, it's wonderful. Thank you, C-doubles. Oh, we also get, uh, isn't it Major Daly? Yeah, Daly. Oh, that guy. Oh, <laughs> topping day. <laughs> kind of casually a bit racist, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's oh, a line yes. I wrote down. It's in episode two. And I'm like, really? Ouch. I think he talks about the Madrasis being lazy. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was the term Johnny Chinaman. That I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Like, you know, those kind of 1920s upper class Brits, they would have been kind of racist. I agree. It's very much in keeping with the spirit of the time, but still it's odd. Yeah. I do like how he ends every sentence with what? That amuses me. <laughs> Let's talk about the appearance of the Plesiosaurus, because that comes out of nowhere and it's never really explained. How did it end up there in the same circuit as everyone else? I'm pretty sure what it is is because since it's also from Earth is I think they just added it in there and didn't quite understand the concept of there were millions of years between these people, so it doesn't make sense. I think it was on purpose that it was there. Yes. I like that explanation. I came up with a slightly different one in that the Bernice, like the Mary Celeste, went missing. And I guess the backstory to it that is not fully written out is that it got attacked by that dinosaur. And that dinosaur just happened to be like a lost dinosaur, like Loch Ness monster or something that just happened to still be around. No, it's the Lermans (laughs) being dumb and not understanding how millions of weirs work. I originally thought that Vorg put it in there just to mess with them to give the people something to watch, but I like Julie's explanation a lot better. And we wrap up this episode with that scene that Don's already alluded to of Vorg's hand reaching in and taking the TARDIS out, which I thought was quite well done. The CSO wasn't bad. Yeah. Oh, no, I think in most of this entire serial, most of the CSO is pretty good. There's a couple things that I didn't like, but for the most part, I was pleasantly surprised. On to episode two. They name drop some things. They name drop some Daleks. And I'm like, ooh, we're going to see a Dalek? No, we don't get to see any Daleks. <laughs> Have to wait a couple of stories for that. But we do get the Agrimator. Is that what it was called? Agrometer? Agrometer, yeah. <laughs> yes, the Agrometer, which is my favorite thing. I just love this mismatch. <laughs> we did it with the Time Monster with Chrononivorous. And now we have the Agrometer. And the Agrometer got us our expected Pertwee fight scene. Oh, yes. Queensberry rules. (laughs) Boxing seems, you know, it's a natural evolution. Going from Venusian karate to Venusian aikido, now we're on to boxing. (laughs) Obviously, and he knows the correct rules to fight by, and he fights by them, so I really appreciated that. He didn't cheat. 
No, we just had to have this little action scene. Another note I made here is that we got some good old-fashioned score. We did. Yeah, when they were chasing them around, it was actually effective at doing yes. what it was supposed to. Oh, made me so happy. And in the previous episode, it struck me was that they actually had that part where Joe and the Doctor were kind of snooping around the ship, those outside shots mm-hmm. on, on the deck. It was like a maracas or something. That was it. That was the only instrument that was playing, just like a kind of thing. And I was like, whoa. What is this experimentation without synth? What is going on? <laughs> I have a note here that says literally, Dudley's score, more instruments, less synth, some wind instruments, Julie will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> and you were right. Oh, that made me very happy. There are very good things in here. It's just, I think there's some editing, there's some script work that just needed some tweaking because rushing to put in some heavy-handed bureaucratic nonsense just didn't work you restructure this and you could totally have a 10 out of 10 story absolutely there's elements there that would have just been so so good speaking of an element that i loved was them walking around the innards of that machine and he talked about it's like walking inside of wristwatch and i just i loved all of that stuff that was in there i thought it was a lot of fun I wish the set design was a little bit better there. I understand it needed to feel cluttered because it was kind of like supposed to be a circuit, but I don't know. I just thought it could have been a little bit more imaginative, especially when we get to our dish rag chase inside it. Your concept of the space, it gets completely thrown off. So you don't really know, are they near? Are they far? How much time do we have? I don't know. I love that set. And Katie Manning actually said something about it in an interview where she says, It was a big set and it was used very carefully. They would take a piece out and put another piece in and we could go right through the whole motion again, making the set look a lot bigger than it was. They did a lot of homework on that. And I kind of saw that. Like it was very clearly just rearranged periodically and different pieces added, removed to give the impression that they were going through different parts of the machine. But it was still all one set. So just making more with less, basically. They still lampshaded it, though. They had that line about all these shafts look very much alike, Mm -hmm. which some future jerk reviewer could probably take that out of context and make it sound dirty, but we're above that here. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we're mostly all in agreement except for Riley. I mean, I'm not saying they're the worst ever seen. I was just a little disappointed. I was expecting more. You have to understand, I already mentioned this before. I went in with some big expectations here within just off the first 30 seconds. That's totally fair. We also had Morgan Sherna talking about dim-witted yokels. Yes. <laughs> and I was just very happy that, one, they talked about dim-witted yokels, and I'm like, you might be the dim-witted yokels. <laughs> you might you might be. <laughs> Whereas the one line of dialogue I wrote down, topping day, because it just sounded so ridiculous, and I love it. I love Vorgan Sherna so much. Absolutely. I really do. I wanted more of them, and I love the evolution of their... Well, okay. It's not even the evolution of the characters, because they don't really change, but just how the plot revolves around them is really fun. Yeah, I would agree with that. So what you're saying is a spinoff is what they needed. Yeah, big, big finish. <laughs> they use the eradication machine because we always need a death ray of some sort. Again, I love the fact it's just a giant gun. They make it sound like it's going to be something different, and nope, just a giant fuck-off massive gun. (laughs) Was that the only one they had, or did I misinterpret their dialogue? I think they had more because they mentioned that they're already working on a newer model, so I assume. I guess, but the way they were talking about it was like, all we gotta do is mess with this one. Maybe there were more, they just weren't easy to get. It's like one per spaceport or what have you. But the best part of the whole thing is that out of that, we get hurt. We say, get up, not yet. I'm only half cooked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, Joe, that is wonderful. I love it. Again, their banter and some of the lines that they're given work really well. Absolutely. One thing with the Doctor I really love is just as there are concerns around anyone getting out, you know, or anyone trying to escape, that's actually vocalized and it just cuts to the Doctor and Joe trying to escape. Mm -hmm. After Vork is saying, it's practically escape proof. (sighs) Practically. Evidently not. And they get out through the cave and we get that nice shot of outdoors, which is once again very cool if you don't know what's really going on. 
it's very cool and honestly in a story that has so much studio it's nice to get something that is just out and out an outdoor scene on some marshland yep mm-hmm. i liked that i also liked the tardis effect when it goes from small to big yeah that was some well done cso as well also a bit of foreshadowing of what will happen should anything else escape mm-hmm after that happens, we get the paranoid interminers or whatever, and they are like, oh my gosh, disease, war, all this stuff is going to happen because this thing grew big. I'm like, guys, <laughs> I promise you, you're freaking out for the weirdest of things, and I don't understand how you can have gone through life freaking out about one thing that happens like that's not expected. They kept reminding me of Kith from Futurama, just always being scared and nervous about things. System fluid-filled bladders. Oh no, <laughs> the diseases. <laughs> that was pretty good, Don. Yeah, it was. I've spent a lot of time practicing useless things like that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I've definitely been through custom situations where there have been numerous things about importing food and what have you, and I've been pulled aside and have my bag checked on arriving into the US before to see what I might be carrying. So it's almost like they've taken those things that are part and parcel of customs and dialed them up to 11. It's the dialed up to 11 that just, ugh, I can't shake it. It's something, something silly. Back to outside, we finally get to see a Drashig rising up, roaring at the Doctor and Joe. I thought the puppet was pretty good. It is significantly better than the dinosaur and the Silurians. <laughs> yeah. And that's our cliffhanger. So episode three. I love that look as it pops up and then it just kind of snaps its head over and it opens up and makes that noise. I don't know what it is. It obviously is not supposed to be intimidating because it's a special effect from oh so many years ago, but I enjoy it because it makes me laugh so much. There's something very goofy about it that I really like and it really makes me happy. <laughs> if you kind of squint your eyes a little bit, it almost works, and it's very kaiju. Yeah, I could. I see what you're talking about with that, yeah. That's exactly where I was going. It feels like something straight out of Godzilla. I love it. I thought it was wonderful. It's one of those things where I'm like, man, if you had given me another episode in another section of this thing with another ridiculous monster like this, and, ah, uh, gold. And we more or less very quickly hear about how dangerous they are. Vorg talking about them eating a spaceship. Yeah. And... <laughs> In any other story, you know, knowing this was the budget story gives a little bit of hindsight to this. But if I didn't know this was the budget story, I would be complaining. I'd be like, well, maybe show them eating that spaceship. But of course, they didn't have the money for that for this one. As I've talked about rewriting this stupid thing for most of this, going back to the kaiju thing, that would have been my climactic ending in that they let them into the city to show off to the people that they think are going to rebel, and they put it on display. And then one of the Drashig gets out and gets big and is basically attacking their city. Go full on kaiju movie. Full on kaiju, because they, they get out anyway, yeah. but then you get bigger stakes. Mm -hmm. I didn't quite understand their thought process when... It's more in episode four, but <laughs> our thought process is we're going to get it out, but like only immediately outside of this thing. And then what were you planning on doing with it? Did you think you would be able to like lead it somewhere? It was a weird thought process. We're at ground zero. We're safe. It's like the eye of the hurricane. It'll be fine. Uh, no. I want to focus a little on when the doctor realizes they're in a miniscope, because that cues an interesting morality debate between Joe and the doctor mm -hmm. about the ethics of it. Yeah, that was quite good. The writing felt like it was really, it didn't go completely there, but it just stopped just short and asked the question of the audience like, well, going to a zoo? What do you think about that now? It was good. And what I liked about it was just the fact that it didn't go all the way and just be, you know, unsubtly. It just posed the question and just said, well, figure it out for yourself. And if it had been made, I don't know, 20, 30 years later, I would have almost thought that it would be a commentary on reality TV, particularly 
in episode two where you see Vorg dial up the agrometer. Mm-hmm. That is very much the manipulation you see them do on shows like Big Brother, yeah, where they deliberately ratchet up the tension to get some good drama. It almost feels ahead of its time with that. Yeah, I think if it were a little bit more modern, they would have gone down the reality TV versus the being in the zoo thing to a degree like the comparison with the zoo, although I've known people who've worked in zoos and are there for the research and teachings that can happen with zoos and depending on how it's run i won't go onto my soapbox there but obviously zoos at one point in time were very much more of a hey we just put them in a cage and you can just look at them which is different than how a lot of them are handled now not all obviously but i did like that they towed that line but they did i think go the right direction in saying like there is also that slight difference of these are intellectual beings There is a certain morality line of the mental capacity of who's stuck in there. Yeah, although what I think is interesting is Vorg and Scherner are very deliberately painted as vaudeville characters. So this is, to your point, Julie, very clearly meant to be more reminiscent of those kind of Victorian and Edwardian era zoos of animals basically in cages for people to just look at. Yeah, gore cat. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you, Don versus the actual scientific purposes of a modern zoo. I love the way Robert Holmes very deliberately anchors it with that kind of imagery. And we got real deep here, guys. (laughs) We did. (laughs) Let's talk about some more googly-eyed monsters, all right? (laughs) I can point out that we did get another very excellent navy beard with, I think, the captain of the ship, maybe. It was wonderful. I will always find the navy men who have a good, excellent beard. And it's also in episode three where we have continual shots uh, in many different locations within the miniscope where the Drashigs break through walls like the Kool-Aid man. And I love it (laughs) because every single time, maybe it's because I mentioned Mystery Science Theater 3000 so often, but it's a joke they would often do when dealing kaiju movies is when that their mouth was open, I immediately, once they like crash through a wall, in my mind, I heard them saying, hey, (laughs) every single time they did it. God, I cannot emphasize how much I love the goofiness of that character design so much and how it moves. And I do love that whole section where you got the two, I guess they were probably next to each other too, pieces of the miniscope and what happens when those walls break down and just the chaos that ensues, especially because they're on that loop. And then with the Drashics there, it's not like the loop gets completely compromised, but obviously things aren't going as they had been. And I think that's why Claire starts to realize something doesn't feel right. And I think this really cements of when that really started to happen. We've made so many criticisms of this, but we all seem to agree that we like the premise. Maybe this premise should not have been the one that had to bounce the budget for it. Maybe this is the one that they should have been like, the hell with it. Let's throw some cash at this. Let's get a lot more monsters. Let's get a lot more locations within the miniscope. Let's really go for it. That's something I would like to note as we go through this season. I'm going to look back to this one and say, okay, was this other serial something they could have cut back on and could we have bumped up this one? Yeah, I'm going to be interested to get your thoughts on that as we go through it as well, knowing what's coming. We've got an epic coming up. For me, with this serial, it's not necessarily the budget. It's just the structure of the story. I think it could have worked on the budget they had because everything that they had, they clearly put on the screen. Mm-hmm. If it hadn't been for the need for a budget story, this just wouldn't have ever been written. Yeah, You know, it was written with that in mind. But regardless, we get our fight on the ship, which, yes, we're on a floating ship and we're going to use dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> I just question the logic on that one. It's fine. I love this plan. <laughs> Someone did not crank up the smartometer. That was the problem. <laughs> But it's kind of at this point where the doctor and Joe had been separated. We've got this epic showdown going on on the boat with the thrashings coming after everyone. And the doctor is like, well, I still need to find a way to get out. He does. I love that cliffhanger because it's such an inversion. Instead of seeing a monster and then a woman screams, it's the doctor and Shana screams because, of course, he's the alien in this situation. Mm hmm. I love it so hard. (laughs) All right, episode four. 
This is, I think, one of the best setup jokes in the entire serial. And the doctor wakes up. He's trying to get his parents. And then he asks them if he's on Metabellus 3. <laughs> <laughs> After being so stubborn about being so certain that they were there when they were on the ship in episode one. And being so certain, like, no, 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 this isn't Earth. I know I'm right. And then all through this goes through this size enlargement situation. I mean, just bizarre situations happening to him. First couple things he wants to know is, did I make it to Metabolus 3? Priorities, man. And that's going to be an ongoing thing this season. Oh. Which makes it even better. That's good. That's good. Spoilers? I don't think that's really a spoiler. Not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love how once he's out, he immediately takes charge and asks his questions with authority and is immediately holding Plattrack responsible for allowing the miniscope to be imported. I just think he's just got this real force of character at that point that I love seeing, but he's never a dick about it either. If there was ever a time to be a dick, these three inner miners, that would have been a good time. I also love Vorg's reaction to the Doctor. He sees how he's dressed and assumes that he's a fellow Carney. He tries to talk in Polare at him and the Doctor's <laughs> like, what the hell are you talking about? There's that. But then he also is talking about the races that are in the miniscope yeah. and he calls them livestock. My insurance doesn't cover the replacement of livestock. Yeah, they're financial assets. Oh, it just rubbed me so the wrong way. That's why I really wanted to strangle Vork and why I liked Sherna because I think she really started to realize she's like, you know, we need to help them because they're beings. They they need to be helped. Here's the question. Who's the real villain here? Vorg or the Interminers? Vorg. Yeah, that's what I think. Drashic number three. I mean, the Interminers are also the bad guys. They're all bad guys. Yeah. But I see Vorg as being worse in that he doesn't realize it obviously they don't all realize it but he's completely clueless as to what he's been doing i think vorg is morally questionable i think calic and Orum in trying to overthrow the president are pretty shitty and i think that pletrak is just a clueless bureaucrat oh i just thought vorg was the bad guy because of that outfit he was wearing <laughs> <laughs> it was an affront to your eyes it's a crime against all of time and space <laughs> <laughs> but Sherna's eye makeup was on point. <laughs> yes, yes, it, oh, was. it was. beautiful. By the way, costume designer James Aitchison said about those costumes, at the time, you could go into any kind of horrible gift shop and find these springy things with balls on the end. I think they were just decorative gifts, but I thought they looked like planets revolving around a solar system, so we made a silly headdress out of them, which is obviously <laughs> what Sherna's wearing. I love it. They just go to like a random gift shop and are like, here's some things. Let's make an outfit. Again, this is the man who did the costumes for the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy as well. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. And a clear hat. <laughs> oh, yes. See, I always thought the inspiration also was very similar to like the Magical Mystery Tour. Ooh, I see that. A couple of years too late, though. We've got the Doctor needing to go back in to basically fix the breaking machine, right? And to rescue Joe, obviously. But as he's about to head in, Pletrak shows up, wants to send him off to the ICCA or ICLA, whatever that was meant to be. But they trick him and send the doctor back in. But Pletrak shoots and destroys the phase two lever. Boo. Of course, there had to be some dramatic tension. I felt like that was a little bit contrived. It was, but then we get this wonderful little thing where Borg and Turner are trying to fix it, and he's like, hey, touch this, and she's like, ow, and he's like, that, and I was like, really? That's how you want to find the live terminal? <laughs> yeah, this final episode has a lot of fun action. There's that, there's the Doctor heading back in, everyone's struggling because the machine's breaking down, but equally you have a Drashig escaping, and... The eradicate is useless until Vorg fixes it and guns down the Drashigs. And I'm there just thinking, yas! <laughs> Usually I hear that with yas queen, but are we calling him a queen? In the UK, there are these, I don't even know what to call them. There are people who are kind of crowned as what they call pearly kings and pearly queens. They wear like very flamboyant outfits covered in mother of pearl. And seeing those like very flamboyant vaudeville costumes almost made me think of that. So I guess, <laughs> yas, king. <laughs> <laughs> so, Julie, I know you keep harping on about 
Scherner, but I love how when Vorg is about to give up on getting the miniscope fixed, it's Scherner who says, but we can try. Yes. And I love her determination here. It's just, she basically saves the day. I honestly don't understand what Sherna is doing with Vorg. She could do so much better. The dance group just sounds better. Yeah, she knows it. She's made a mistake. I think she's going to be leaving his ass as soon as she gets off that planet. I think so too. She should. The The flip side of this is everyone gets sent back. The Doctor and Joe appear outside and the miniscope is destroyed. And then we cut to the Bernice where you get Major Daly looking up from his book and saying, disappointing ending. <laughs> Robert Holmes, you absolute cad. <laughs> I love that piece of it. I love and continue to love the father-daughter dynamic that him and Claire have. I think that's wonderful. And we finally get to cross off the date on the calendar. And he finished his book. I liked that, bringing that little thing back. Also, it makes me wonder because the doctor said that the Bernice never made it to wherever it was it was going. I think Bombay. So what happens to it after this? <laughs> Apparently it gets back. Or an enormous shark eats the entire boat. Awesome. I also love the ending with Vorg where he is going to be honored by Zab for his valiance. And he's like, oh, I wonder if they'll give me any decorations for this. Maybe I'll get a medal. So funny. And then he decides to introduce gambling. This shows in really well with some really good cappers, like really the very, very end of series where Joe says he'll probably wind up president. That That is so good. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the Star Wars original series character. Uh, was it Mud? The Star Trek character? Yeah, yes, yes. That would have been really good where he comes up every couple episodes on the original show because he's kind of a con man. He gets himself into trouble in these new things. They could have done this with Vorg. Maybe they come back to this planet and find out that he is president and he's probably started off some stupid war. He's running a gambling empire. <laughs> In the end, we have the Doctor and Joe slipping off and the last shot is of Sherna smiling. That smirk on her face is so wonderful. I loved it. And I'm like, man, I wish we got her again. That takes us to the end of the story. So let's go ahead and rate this thing. And this time round, Riley, we start with you. This was short and sweet. I believe it could have used a bit more inventiveness in the middle, especially once the plot was revealed to the Doctor and Joe that they were inside the miniscope. I feel like this one is heavily influenced, or my viewing of it is heavily influenced of what we just went through. The time monster is big and does a lot. The Three Doctors is monumental. So this one seems not just because of its four episode length, but it just seems small in regards to any mention of the budgetary constraints. The premise... Excellent. Execution, not so much. The variety of characters provided a lot of fun. I felt like it could have used a little bit more development of the characters, maybe give them a little more drama, maybe a little bit more about Claire. That would have been interesting. And the other problem I had with it, it kind of wrapped my brain, was that there's a lack of drama because no one truly understood what was actually happening in the moment other than the Doctor and Joe until, and that didn't happen for them until it was revealed. And the only people that did kind of know what was going on didn't really seem to care because it was Vork. So could have had some work there, but I appreciated the effort. It was fun. Just could have been executed better. So I will give it six agrometers out of 10. All right, I'll go next. And in all honesty, I think I enjoyed this more than the rest of you guys did. It has its faults. Don, I don't disagree with you structurally. It's not perfect. It could have been done a little better from that perspective. I actually enjoyed the bureaucrats. I saw the funny side of it. I saw what Robert Holmes was trying to do. I love his little self-referential pieces of everyone's basically watching Doctor Who on TV through the miniscope or where Major Daly at the end says, disappointing ending. I love those little flourishes. This serial has a sense of humor. And one element I really love about it is in comparison to so much of the rest of the Pertwee era, this is a small scale story. There's no big threat to the entire planet. There's no galactic war. There's no threat to the universe like we had in The Three Doctors. It is very small scale. The threat are to these particular aliens who are plotting to overthrow their president, but they'll clearly never get there because they're incompetent. I just enjoy it. The Bernice crew are great. The Drashigs are well realized. I think this is just a lot of fun and it stands up on its own and... It's definitely one that was rightfully capped at four parts. So for me, this one gets 7.5 
dish rags. <laughs> Done. You're up next. I think I've expressed most of my issues with this cereal. I don't think it's terrible. It's not garbage. I just found that it left me wanting more and thinking of ways to fix it. Because to me, the constant cutting between the bureaucrats and what was going on in the miniscope didn't work. I would have been more than happy if they had cut out a lot of the bureaucrat stuff and kept it as a reveal, like late in episode three or episode four, because I really liked that initial premise of, hey, we're on this supposed mission ship. We're in a time loop. I would have liked to have seen things happening inside there that we don't really know the cause of. Like as the systems are breaking down, the people on the Bernice are getting their memories back and are wondering what has been going on. How long have we been here? That kind of stuff really would have been much more interesting. There's a lot of potential here, and I don't think it quite lives up to it, but there's some good stuff here, too. So it's not awful. So I'm going to give it five googly eyes on socks out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> and then last but very very much not least <laughs> miss julie i think we're a little all over the place on this one what it feels like there's a lot that i agree with with don i also expressed my dislike of the bureaucrats and i thought that it was it felt like it was tacked on at the end and we found out that it was tacked on so i, I don't particularly care for that I would have loved to have had at least one other monster that was really a part of this to really flesh out the fact that this is, yes, indeed, a carnival of monsters. But we have excellent moments between the Doctor and Joe. Anything that was on the USS Bernice was wonderful. We got real music, not a whole bunch of synth. We got Joe being an expert in escapology. So there's some good, there's some bad. I'm giving it six and a half on point eye makeups out of 10. <laughs> well, that gives us an average for the story of 6.25. The last time we had one that low was all the way back in season eight with The Mind of Evil. This is disappointing by our completely arbitrary ratings. <laughs> That takes us to the end of the episode. We will be back next time as we immerse ourselves in an absolute epic with Frontier in Space. But for now, as always, thank you so much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Googly Eyes on Socks, was recorded on Tuesday the 15th of February 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watches4D, and you can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app all of those things really do help the show and always remember if you arrive somewhere where absolutely everything is totally gray including the people it's probably best just to leave and go somewhere else it's going to be hella boring there <laughs>